Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. My name is Paul Ellis, and I'm your host for these programs about developments in this fast-growing industry. In 2022, Dr. Celine Chalik published The Renaissance of Smart Energy, The Nexus of COVID-19 and Green Energy, which describes the connection between COVID-19 and climate change with an emphasis on research in the field of clean and green energy. Chalik is a climate change scientist and green energy observer for the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. She is also an active member of the UK's Institute of Directors, providing professional development, networking, and expert advice for business leaders. This week, she will be attending the Banking Transformation Summit 2023 in London, a gathering of Europe's banking leaders and innovators. And I want to thank you, Celine, for making time to visit with me and the followers of the Sustainable Finance Podcast today. We're going to speak about several climate change and energy transition issues, but first I want to say a few words about our sponsor. If you're tuning in to this podcast, you already understand the crucial role finance plays in the transition to a sustainable future. With the right individuals leading the way in top companies, sustainability becomes more than just a buzzword. That's why we're excited to have Acre as our sponsor. As a world-leading sustainability search and recruitment company, Acre enables organizations to create real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in their teams. Visit the Acre website to learn more about their latest opportunities or to get in touch about building your perfect team. Hello, Celine, and welcome to the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Cheers. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you for having me. Yes, we're very glad to have you on the program today, and we're going to jump right into the questions that we have uh, that we that our our audience is eager for you to answer today. And the first one is, give us the main message of your book, Renaissance of Smart Energy. Well, the main focus of Renaissance of Smart Energy is decarbonization of the world through energy transition in twenty first century. So when I first started learning about climate change many, many moons ago, uh, approximately 15 years ago, I came to three conclusions. Uh, first one, uh, avoiding a climate disaster would be the hardest challenge people have ever faced. And second one, the only way to do it, you know, it was to invest aggressively, very, very aggressively in clean energy innovation and deployment. Third, last but not least, uh, it's very easy. We needed to get it going, you know. The world still needs to reduce uh, annual green gas emissions from 51 billion tons to zero, but global emissions continue to increase every year, unfortunately. Uh, for example, uh, if you follow the annual IPCC reports, you have watched as scenarios for limiting global temperature rise to 1.5 or even 2 degrees Celsius become increasingly remote. And some of the clean technologies we need are still very far from becoming practical, cost-effective technologies and solutions You know, uh, we can deploy at scale. So uh, this book is also focusing on the energy transformation uh, in Germany as a case study 
widely known as Energie Vende. Uh, this project is the country's planned transition to a low carbon nuclear free economy, which is amazing, very good case study for other nations as well. Uh, but there, there is much more to it than phasing out nuclear power and expanding renewable energies in, in the power sector. So in a nutshell, uh, in this book, I mainly focus on energy transition policies of the governments and institutions. And I give them, you know, let's say in a simple way, very, very uh, sustain. Uh, I, I, I just want to give them sustainability tricks for their projects. Okay. Now, you mentioned something as part of your writing and your speaking about climate change being a posh scientific issue until oh, yeah. COVID-19 <laughs> came along. So please expand on that, if you will, today for our listeners. Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, mentioning about this article. It is one of my published uh, article, actually. It's called Climate Change Was Posh Scientific Issue Until COVID-19. As as you know, climate destruction was the inevitable consequence of this neoliberal economic model, a model that insisted, insisted on deregulation, privatization, and allowing corporations to operate free from government intervention and put profit before people and the planet. So the relationship between science and policy relating to the this deadly coronavirus pandemic has lessons for dealing with climate change. So that's why I wanted to highlight uh, that uh, lesson by writing this article in 2020. So related to that, uh, the renewables highly gains importance as the COVID-19 pandemic intensifies the urgency to expand sustainable energy solutions worldwide. According to a report published by International Energy Agency or um, International Renewable Energy Agency or United Nations Statistics Divisions or World Bank, significant progress had been made on various aspects of this 17 sustainable development goals, as we, you know, as we say uh, in a shortcut, SDGs, prior to the start of COVID-19 crisis. So, these include a notable reduction in number of people worldwide lacking access to electricity, a strong uptake in renewable energy for the electricity generation and improvements in energy efficiency. Despite these advances, uh, global efforts you know, will be accelerated, but unfortunately now those efforts remain insufficient to reach key targets of this uh, beautiful 17 SDGs by 23. Undeniably, we have learned many lessons from the pandemic, of course. Uh, in the next 10 years, uh, this, this next 10 years will determine whether we stand any chance of preventing worse impacts of climate change and the orders of magnitude worse than COVID-19 disruption, it is clear. I just want to a little bit highlight about you know the importance of Generation Z, Gen Z, and we just hit a new population milestone uh, according to United Nations estimates, making them the really really single largest generational group in the world. In that regard, young generation, uh, uh, as I highlight, Z generation has lots of responsibilities for clean futures to push policymakers like Greta 
I believe we will not be able to avoid pandemics unless the environment is saved. If we protect the environment well, it will be ready to feed us. If we can't, it is also ready to poison us. So we shouldn't allow the environment to kill us with our own hands. So that's why I care Z generation. I trust Z generation. And I believe that Z generation is really, really effective on demonizing the effects of climate change. And I really, really trust them. Okay. So, Celine, the next topic that, that we wanted to cover is what the COVID-19 pandemic has taught us about climate change and diplomacy uh, in conjunction with each other. You've mentioned some statistics on how some of the things that had been achieved through the SDGs had been reversed, or at least partially reversed based on uh, the, the pandemic. What else related to um, climate change and diplomacy did COVID-19 lay bare or show us? Yeah, this is a very smart question. Well, climate change is an even greater and more complex global challenge, but the political dynamics of combating it are really, really profoundly different. Uh, while a nation first mentality was plausible, the response to a threat that could be contained by raising barriers and reducing contacts to the outside, it's deeply, deeply uh, counterproductive when it comes to the mitigating global warming. By its very nature, this task requires concerted in international action and weakened and reduced a, a sideshow reducing health crisis. Uh, diplomacy must be reinvigorated to ensure a necessary and fair transition toward a carbon neutral world. For example, uh, China during pandemic uh, overcame its health crisis very quickly rapidly, and recovered very rapidly, even as the United States faced multiple new waves of infections. So this condition boosted Beijing's self-confidence and assertiveness while deepening concerns in Washington. So instead of working to mitigate the geopolitical rivalry, leaders on both sides have used the pandemic to exacerbate and exaggerate and increase the increase the tensions just like Donald Trump before him United States President Joe Biden has made the rivalry with China the centerpiece of United States foreign policy United States Chinese blame games about the origin and handling of the coronavirus this deadly pandemic have further damaged multilateral cooperation, which had already been weakened by the Trump administration, unfortunately, in the past. Trump's decision to quit World Health Organization, which Biden reversed when he took office, thanks God, was only the most visible part of cultural damage in the world during pandemic. On the other hand, diplomatic missions also changed during pandemic. Despite technological advances, uh, most operational foreign diplomacy work until 2020 was still handled through traditional means, you know, diplomatic missions, the exchange of letters, phone calls, B2B meetings, conferences, as in-person gatherings and travel became difficult due to the coronavirus. I don't want to say thank to the, thanks to the coronavirus. Uh, it didn't take long for the business of diplomacy to go virtual. And it's really, really helpful, especially for Generation Z, because 
they are addicted to technology, you know, they were born into the technology. So on the other hand, uh, however, many of these issues may be unique to the inherently defensive fight against a pandemic, an approach based on keeping insiders safe and outsiders out by its very, very nature breeds national egotism. It creates, you know, it might create national egotism. Right. Global warming, uh, in a nutshell, global warming by contrast imposes the opposite logic. And no, I just want to summarize with that word, no nation can be safe unless all relevant players act together, Paul. Yes, that's very true. As we know, this is a global um, issue, uh, phenomenon. It's It's got to be addressed by everyone together. Um, and so what I would like to ask you is at this point is what do you see as the future of the energy transition and as part of your response if you would talk about what the oil and gas industry companies uh, can do to become successful as renewable power providers and gradually transition away from the fossil fuel it is very very uh, I think key question of this uh, meeting, you know, this podcast, uh, oil and gas companies need to navigate an environment in which increasingly engage with carbon reduction targets, affect investment decisions, and with strong uncertainty about where and how to support activities such as offshore generation, which is very important for the transition, EVs, electrical vehicles, charging, and also hydrogen production development. Uh, in that regard, offshore project development is really, really cru crucial and very important. And oil and gas players with extensive experience in large-scale projects can develop and build integrated projects, including renewables generation and hydrogen and heat production. In addition, some bidders for, for the projects provide offers that include heat and hydrogen investments as well. And on the other hand, um, oil and gas companies can leverage uh, these to offer deca decarbonization solutions, including energy retail, batteries, carbon capture, utilization and storage, uh, as we call CCUS. I think new comprehensive reporting frameworks also can be developed uh, regarding, you know, this transition by oil and gas companies that these frameworks can cover profitability as well as uh, environmental impact across scopes one, two and three emissions, I believe. Yes. You know, one of the things that we're seeing here in the U.S. is that despite the diplomatic influence of more conservative elements in the U.S., Texas has become the greatest producer of renewable energy of any state in the U.S. as well. So we have this dichotomy working at the same time economically and from a business perspective. And of course, as you're suggesting, the oil and gas industry has a lot of valuable infrastructure that can be used during the energy transition as well. So how do asset managers and investors then find ESG investment opportunities in Europe, especially because one of the things that uh, U.S. investors are always looking for is how to diversify their portfolio, whether it's in Europe or in Asia. So talk about where 
those types of investment strategies or, and opportunities are available in Europe? I'm in London. I'm based in London and mm -hmm. operating my business from London. So that's why I'm very integrated with uh, ESG uh, business and green bonds uh, with the bank in Canary Wharf, which is really, really important, uh, you know, sustainability center for the Europe. So when I talk with many uh, asset managers, especially Financial Times uh, last month uh, re invited me as a guest uh, to their clean money, you know, green money summit, mm -hmm. actually. So uh, when I talk with asset managers during this summit, uh, you know, many asset managers now see huge opportunities in ESG if they are able to look beyond regulatory necessity and embrace transformation. Some 63% hope to develop new product ranges, for example. This percentage is coming from PVC's research. Also, PVC's research suggests institutional investors in Europe expect ESG and non-ESG products to converge from the next year. And as I read in their report that 77% of these institutions expect to stop buying the latter, we believe that in Europe, ESG fund assets under management could account for more than 50% of mutual fund assets by 2025, representing compound annual growth growth of you know approximately 30 percent between 2019 and 2025 so uh, the imperative today is to act strategically and rather than tactically tactically in europe in terms of esg so now we have a couple of minutes left and from your perspective i think it's really important uh, since you're a founder of women in smart energy uk i think it's very important uh, how can we take a look at employing more women in the energy sector. Well, that's the amazing topic. I, I really like to talk about this issue because I suffered a lot as a, as a you know, minority lady based in London. <laughs> so on average, you know, there are 76% fewer women than men working in energy sector, according to International Energy Agency's report. Uh, published uh, last year. So empowering women means facilitating uh, professional advancement while promoting system transformation as well. So in order to advance women's careers, it is in, in the energy sector, of course, it is necessary to improve access to employment and financial resources to invest in women's human and social capital through education and skills development and the creation of valuable professional networks. So that's why, for example, I'm the member of Global Women Network for the Energy Transition. It is GVNet. This network published very amazing report, and also they interview with us before publishing this report. It's called Women for Sustainable Energy Strategies to Foster Women's Talent for Transformational Change. It's an amazing report. Uh, I can share with you, of course. Yes, please. And the report highlights the importance of designing inclusive recruitment practices to facilitate, facilitate women's uh, entrance in this sector, you know, highly men-dominated sector, such as making it a very, very common practice to write job descriptions in a gender-neutral language. 
you know, such small steps can greatly contribute towards creating flexible and inclusive work environments that should account for many women's role as a professional and uh, caregivers as well. It's a dual role. The important thing is employers should enforce zero tolerance policies on sexual harassment and also gender-based discrimination in this sector. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate you taking the time today to spend with us. And um, where online can our listeners learn more about your multiple sustainable finance initiatives? And how can they get in touch with you regarding the topics that we've discussed in today's episode? Well, I have official. I have an official web page. It's called um, my name, my surname, selinjalik.com. They can approach me through that, or I can share my email. It is my Gmail, selinjalik006 at gmail.com. So I'm happy to cooperate and collaborate with your listeners. Great. Well, thanks again, Dr. Selin Jalik. And for our listeners, if you're ready to take your team to the next level, or if you're an experienced sustainability professional, visit the Acre website to get in touch. With the right individuals leading the way in your company, sustainability becomes more than a buzzword. Let Acre enable real change by embedding and developing purpose-driven people in your teams. And to our followers, join us again next week for another episode. I'm Paul Ellis, and this is the Sustainable Finance Podcast. Sustainable.